Hey, everyone. David Chen here. Just a couple quick notes about the podcast you're about to hear. Um, first of all, uh, you might hear some fireworks noises going on in the background a little bit. Uh, it's hard to get away from fireworks. There's a lot of fireworks happening in general at random places around the country. So um, if you hear some fireworks noises, sorry about that. Uh, but I assure you that the insights and the humor and the wit of the podcast is still there even through the fireworks. Other thing I want to mention is uh, there are some plot details revealed during our Shirley pre-spoiler section that some people might find to be a bit spoilery. So just know that you have been warned. Um, if you don't want to know anything about Shirley, the movie that we review on today's podcast, uh, you may want to wait until you've seen the movie. Uh, but I, I don't think it's that spoilery, but I understand some people might. So just a fair warning. Okay. Uh, enjoy the show. Thanks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen, and with me are... Devinder Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, she is the senior writer at VanityFair.com. Or a senior writer? Is it the senior writer, Joanna, or a senior writer? <laughs> I bet One a. and only. I bet a. <laughs> a senior writer at VanityFair.com. She writes all of Vanity Fair. <laughs> She's the only writer. She's also uh, my co-host on the brand new Audio Boom podcast, Truth versus Hollywood. Joanna Robinson, welcome back to Slash Filmcast. Joanna, how are you doing today? I am delighted to be here. It's been a while, and usually I only come for like big blockbuster movies. It feels like so. It's nice there to aren't hear. any. Yeah, exactly. Category <laughs> uh, my... no longer exists. <laughs> To so. my benefit. No, no, no. Um, so, yeah. So, here I am to talk about something a little a little creepier, a little quieter, which makes me excited. So, Joanna, this podcast, Truth versus Hollywood, um, you know, what, what is this podcast, you know, before we get into the show? Oh, gosh. Well, Dave Chen and anyone listening, um, if you've ever watched a movie based on true story, and let's say you watch it at home, because obviously we don't take out our phones in the movie theater, uh, and you're watching it at home, and like while you're watching, you're like, oh my god, is this real? Did this really happen? And you look it up on Wikipedia, and then you spoil yourself for the ending of this movie based on history, etc. Um, what I'm saying is, instead of doing that, why don't you listen to Truth vs. Hollywood, which is a podcast where Dave Chen and I take a number of your favorite films that are based on true stories, and we break down what actually happened. We've got uh, interviews with some of the folks who either are experts in the historical event or maybe we're actually even there. Uh, and then Dave and I just, you know, banter, banter, uh, rubbing, rubbing some elbows on a podcast. Uh, we just did Goodfellas and we've started Social Network. Each film has two podcast episodes that go with it. Did I, did I do it, Dave Chad? You nailed it. You yes. nailed it. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's our new podcast. is out right now. Check it out. Truth versus Hollywood, wherever podcasts can be downloaded. And uh, I had a lot of fun recording that podcast with John Robinson. So check it out. Truth versus Hollywood. All right. We like to begin every episode of the Slash Filmcast these days with kind of a weekly check-in. Um, because my rationale was that we're living in an unprecedented time right now. And it feels weird to not acknowledge that. So we'd like to acknowledge that. Talk about what's going on in our lives right now. Talk about how things are at this uh, stage of things in the United States. Uh, let's start with Devinder Hardwar, who deserves some congratulations for successfully moving his family across the country from New York City to Georgia. Devinder, congratulations. You're, you're, you're coming you. to us from Thank Georgia you. right now, right? 
I yeah. am. I'm coming from my new basement in an actual house, and it's very <laughs> weird. It's very strange. But uh, Dave, I will say, I don't know how to qualify successfully. It was very harrowing, very difficult. So yeah. So so tell us, like, yeah. what is it like to move across the country now? Because there's a lot of things you got to deal with when you're moving across the country that in normal times are very challenging. Finding movers, uh, flying, you know, that uh-huh. I imagine are exacerbated by the pandemic. So, like, what was your experience like? It was all incredibly difficult. I, I think the hardest part was just packing our apartment. Honestly, the the normal, you know, deal with moving. There's just so much stuff. It was just a two-bedroom apartment, but packing took forever. We were honestly packing, you know, up until the movers arrived and, like, just furiously trying to get stuff to do. Um, we were able to survive this whole thing. Our movers helped us out by packing up some of the last things. Our super helped us clean up. We were able to run to the airport, and I thought we were all in the clear. And then New York gave me a final goodbye uh, by basically killing all the cabs. There were no cabs. So we missed our first flight by five minutes, oh. I think. It was pretty bad. So I get there. I was like, okay. So, so I, I, when you say killing all the cabs, like, yeah. there, there, were just, there just happened to be no cabs. Because they were all like 10 or 15 minutes them. out. Yeah, oh it was not God. great. So waited. Okay. So, okay. So wait a minute. What, what, is, what is the process of even flying now at all? Like, well, was that yeah. complicated and, and, and the lengthier I'm, I'm process? I'm going to get to that, Jeff. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> but first, first flight, gone. Entire family, two cats in the airport. I go to Delta and I'm like, okay, just uh, can we get on the next flight, please? And the guy just looks at me, and he makes a couple calls, and uh, yeah, no flights for two days. <gasps> we were closing on the house the next day. Whole family in the airport, two cats and the baby, everything. <laughs> oh, it was no. uh, it was not great. It was probably one of the yeah. My did heart you stay in the airport so for low. two days? We just we stayed in the airport, and uh, we did a little think. And my wife and I, we basically well, Delta can't help us. So all the flights, pretty. it looked like all the flights were also booked because there aren't that many flights and everybody's, you know, not packing in as many seats. Um, so it looked like all was lost. We were about to just like say, can we just push this closing? Oh, also the movers were going to be there the next day. So I don't know what we we're going to do if we couldn't make it there that day. Uh, so we found oh, because, the last because the movers to move in the stuff into yes. the new place. They yes. need you there. Yeah, they need you need there. to be there because they can't and move they into the house, an empty house uh, with no keys. They need the house right. closed. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, our, our meticulous plan was all about to fall apart, uh, just like you like Jeff, uh, your favorite movie. I drama. do. It's fun. It's best <laughs> it laid is, plans movie. You're living it's it. Not a not a fun thing to live. <laughs> Did through. the end of the story is that you traded your cats for seats on the plane? Is that how it worked? <laughs> that would have been. You know, that would have been the story. We found basically a Southwest flight that had unlisted seats or something so we somehow managed mm. to get those seats and get everything happening but we basically you know lost all our money on the delta flight uh mm. just had to hustle to the other side of the airport but thank god it was uh. at least in the same airport and it had to be a connection flight so we had to take one connection with the baby and two cats so that was fun too we got to atlanta at like midnight and oh, thank hold, hold on, for, slow down, slow down. Yeah. so when you get on the yeah. plane yeah what is the plane like is it is it completely full oh is everyone it, everyone's right. wearing masks uh, it's not completely full southwest and delta and a lot of places are doing you know uh limited seats i think they're only booking up to 30 to 50 percent uh people are trying to space each other everybody's wearing masks um so hence that the part, unlisted seats the unlisted yeah, seats the are unlisted seats, hey, yeah. yeah we'll sell you the seats we're not supposed to sell you yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know what happened uh, we just went way way to the back because it's southwest and you can just pick your seats you know yeah so that's where that. parents tend to go right yeah. yeah yeah so do that wear our masks uh you know put a little like hat mask around sophia 
and we just you know survived the flight it was like any other normal flight but there wasn't like in-flight service there wasn't a lot of other things and then at the airports once you get out of new york everybody is just living normally which is a very strange thing for me to see honestly um, well, so, so, yeah. so you're in Georgia right now, and like, mm-hmm. you, when you say people are living normally, does it look like pre-pandemic, like restaurants are open and bars are open and everything? Like, what's I mean, what's people are wearing there? masks, but there are definitely a lot of people who aren't wearing masks, and the stores are requiring people to wear masks to go in. Restaurants aren't really open, and there may be one or two, but it's basically people trying to do the normal things they do, just with masks and more protections. Uh, it just feels weird. It feels a little different than New York where literally even stepping outside my door, I had to be masked up and protected here. You know, we, we, we live in a small little suburb, uh, our cul-de-sac area. We, we could just go walk around cause there aren't really that many people to run into. And if you do run into a neighbor, then you know, put on a mask and have a chat or something, but it's at least less, uh, less of a pressure cooker than New York was. Uh, so yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my hand around all this. I'm not even getting to like how we found a house remotely. We never saw this house. Like we never got to step foot into the house because of pandemic. So my parents visited, my brother visited, um, everybody was into it. So we kind of just bought it on that, uh, based on that. Yeah. Wow. Cause we got, we had to get out of New York. We were remaking escape from New York. So (laughs) there you go. Well, Devendra, uh, we're so glad that you made it to the new place. Yeah. And uh, Devendra is recording from uh, the basement of the new place. So if he sounds a little bit echoey, that's why. But he's also covered himself in a blanket. Yeah. It's uh, also a very min- hot fleece blanket. So yeah, to I'm minimize suffering the, through all uh, this. To minimize the echo. So if you uh, hear echo from Devendra, just know that he's still white knuckling it from underneath a blanket in his basement with a there laptop. There is sweat streaming down my face right yeah, now. Just, just, just to make this happen. Just screams rivulets of sweat. So... Thank you, Devinder, for your sacrifice. We really do appreciate it here on the podcast. Um, Joanna Robinson, uh, I think you're in Oakland, right? David Chen, I am in Oakland, yes. How is, how is it going over there in Oakland? Uh, it's okay. I didn't have to like get on a plane, so um, my life feels very uneventful <laughs> by comparison. You're doing a lot better, Joanna. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, things are, things are super weird here. There's... Um, in that, you know, California was feeling, this is a classic California story, <laughs> where we were feeling very good about ourselves and very smug with how we handled, like, the outbreak uh, to start with. We locked down pretty early. Governor Gavin yeah. Newsom has been doing, I think, L- Let really- me just say, Joanna, as somebody who is living <laughs> in New York, it was really rich to hear California just, like, <laughs> criticizing the whole thing as if, like, the people of New York decided to be jerks that you know it, it is the people in charge who kind of command so many things and they were idiots and we all we all recognize that we get it we wish we were and all that's what that, no no that's um, the yeah. shoe's about to drop Devendra, yes. is what i'm saying <laughs> oh yeah which is that like classic like classic california we were just like <laughs> you know we we ate kale before the rest of you and we also like closed up our state before the rest of you or whatever uh but then you know a bunch of assholes have been assholes since uh, the state started to reopen and we saw a huge spike unfortunately um on monday today so it means like the state is closing back up for fourth of july etc but it's just been like 
It's been really interesting because where I live in the circles that I run in, everyone is being so careful with masks mm-hmm. and social distancing and washing their hands and everything. Um, but I know that that's just, it's the, it's the weirdest test of our social contract. Cause you know, you're like doing your best with the hopes that everyone else will be doing their best. And some people just aren't cause they don't think that that's what's going to help anyone. And, and so then yeah. the rest of us, uh, get to deal with it. So anyway, like thankfully everyone, uh, like I'm healthy. Everyone I know is healthy. So, um, you know, there have people have it a lot worse than I do, but, and it's like really frustrating because the stakes aren't just like, uh, you know, getting to go to the beach in the holiday or, you know, for, for many people going back to work for many people, their health in general. And so it's just frustrating to see the state like, um, fall apart like this. So, so I'm yeah. saying. we're paying, we're paying for our early, <laughs> our yeah. early smugness now, I think the, uh, homepage of latimes.com top story, um, LA County coronavirus cases surge past a hundred thousand with yeah. record one day tally. Um, Los Angeles County confirmed 22 additional coronavirus related deaths and 2,903 new COVID cases on Monday, the largest single day number of new infections the county has reported since the pandemic hit the U S um, Jeff, it's out, I, I'm guessing your life is, is unchanged, uh, in terms of just, just getting by every day, taking walks outside and staying inside the rest of the time. Is that right? Pretty much. I, you know, I had an interesting experience this, I won't take too much time, but I, uh, we have been extraordinarily cautious and locked down, um, pretty much completely. Uh, we had a little bit of contact with my wife's um, dad and stepmom. Uh, and then we decided about two weeks ago that we were going to open our germ circle slightly. Yes. Open the bubble. And this is the yes. new concept. Yes. Yes. You have to, yeah. you, you select the people that are in your germ circle. It's like, you know, I don't think that person has an STD. I'm going to sleep with them. You know, that's <laughs> right. kind of the, the situation we're in now. Um, and <laughs> great analogy, but okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so we have a family that we've been pretty friendly with for a long time. They have uh, a son about my son's age and a daughter about my daughter's age. And they're lovely people. And uh, they have also been very, very careful. And so we decided to open our germ circle, invite them in, and they, us. And we uh, had a couple of times where where my son would go over and play at their house and their their son would come over to play at our house. We had dinner with them once. It was wonderful attempt at normalcy you know mm-hmm. it just felt like okay finally we, we can actually be social with some people and have some some fun and you're, you're, like, uh, you're like joel miller in the last of us learning to love again basically yeah yeah no yeah. I, i'm thinking what of that opening uh <laughs> i'm thinking of the opening sequence of 28 weeks later where it's just like those random families uh hold up together against the yeah. zombie invasion and just like trying to to have some sense of normalcy i'm glad you found that jeff it's a great thing well, that's step one of the story. Step yes. two of the story is that this weekend, uh, we get a text message from the very same family oh, no. saying, saying uh, we are very ill. Oh. Uh, the husband has gone to the emergency room uh, with horrible stomach issues and uh, difficulty breathing and... Uh, it's very, very bad, and the doctors at the ER think that the symptoms are consistent with COVID. Oh, boy. So, uh, we basically lost our shit uh, because mm-hmm. 
here is literally the only family other than my right. my wife's mom and stepdad, the only people we've had any contact with whatsoever. And they, it, it, you know, my son had, this was on Saturday. My son had been at their house all day long on Wednesday. So we basically assumed there's no universe in which we don't have whatever germs they have. And it felt like we had a ticking time bomb inside uh -huh, us. Uh -huh. uh, we were, we just were waiting for symptoms to show up. We were like, okay, we're about three days away from having it and having our life. I mean, you never know with this disease because it is unique and different and has strange symptoms for, for all kinds of people. But by and large, I wasn't super worried about our lives. I, I thought, you know, my mm -hmm. wife and I are fairly healthy people. We don't have the kind of preexisting conditions that you see costing people their lives. Um, and so I wasn't, I didn't think it was a death sentence by any stretch, but I did look at it like this is going to completely ruin our lives in the short term. This is the kind of thing that is going to make it impossible for us to work. And, um, we, you know, we, we can't see family now that we are, we are effectively pariahs, right? We have, we have the scarlet letter. We are, it's going to be bad. And it felt awful. We were, we went to a deep depression and it felt like, you know, your brain starts doing weird things to you where it's like, was that a tickle in the back of my throat? Is that, am I, is my stomach feel, am I, can I breathe? Am I breathing mm -hmm. right? Is that, I don't think that's, is that, is the, is the COVID happening? You know, you start having all those things. Do I have a headache right now? I think I have a headache right now. Do I have a headache right now? Oh, that's definitely a headache. All those things that your, your body, you start getting that psychosomatic uh, response. And then over the course of the weekend, we're getting updates over and over and over via text from our friends. And, uh, the wonderful end of the story is that they just had food poisoning. Oh. So thankfully, Great. I mean, it's still bad for them, but they, they had uh, awful food poisoning. I'm sure they've never felt happier to have food. Poisoning. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, the so only good time. It certainly put things into a new perspective for us, though. I mean, it was really, it was really a harrowing experience to feel like we're. It's just like tick tock, tick tock, and still mm -hmm. we until we start feeling the symptoms ourselves, or our kids start feeling the symptoms, and um, and it's like the one people, the only people that we opened our germ circle to. This is what's. It just felt overwhelming, but thankfully, it was a false alarm, and uh, everybody's fine. Even they have recovered now from the food poisoning, and everybody's doing okay. Glad to hear, Jeff. That's good. I was very worried yeah. about you when you told when we texted about this story. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I I had uh, I mentioned to you, Dave, uh, while this was happening, Devendra was busy moving across the country. <laughs> but I had mentioned to you that uh, I was really kind of uh, in a bad place mentally, yeah. just really scared, and you know, your brain starts going twelve steps down the line of like what the ramifications of all this and what it's gonna and how it's gonna disrupt your life and all the things and. So the the short version of the story is just wear masks, everybody. Let's all wear masks, <laughs> right. shall we? Just I, I got masks, this. Uh, it, it is so strange that this is a this is a disease that, as far as we can tell, to some people leaves it leaves those people completely untouched, like asymptomatic. They don't even experience anything. Other people it kills, and then other people it completely like devastates their health to the point where they're going to spend years recovering. And it's just like, and you just don't know which one you are, you know. Uh, yeah. it's a, it's a very weird and unsettling feeling, you know? I will, um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I will say the, the one thing that, um, 
and I'm sure your listeners already know this, but the one thing I'm like grateful for right now is that testing is pretty, is pretty available and is, and the turnaround is pretty fast. So like if you or someone, you know, yeah. thinks they're sick, you, you will have an answer within 48 hours. Uh, and we went yeah. through that. And I, I, I tell you, we did a lot of reading about that and it turns out it's still, there's still about a 30 to 40% false negatives situation. So even, even with negative uh, tests, you're not a hundred percent out of the woods. Um, yeah which is really scary. I mean, most of the, most of the false negatives are the asymptomatic cases. So right. our friends were having, obviously having symptoms that caused the whole issue in the first place. Um, so we were hopeful that even if they got a negative test, it would feel a little more comfortable. They did get a negative test. And then of course we discovered that it was food poisoning. So um, it worked out, but, but, you know, in that process, we're like, okay, we'll just wait for the test. And then you start doing some reading and it's like, no, the tests can also be false negative. In fact, a large number of them are false negative and people get tested multiple times. And then like the third or fourth test is a positive. It's pretty wild right now. You know, we did get this email from a listener in Chicago who wrote into slash filmcast at gmail.com with their experience with COVID-19. Uh, I just want to read it because I thought it was very powerful. Uh, this emailer writes in, uh, in mid-March, the COVID-19 situation was just setting in. Warnings were in place before the lockdown and masks. I went out on St. Patrick's Day weekend to eat at a restaurant and hang out with a few friends, shared a vape pen, and didn't feel especially anxious about catching the virus since I'm in middle age but healthy and I rarely get sick. I don't really know how I ended up catching it since my friends did not get sick, but by the following week, I came down with flu-like symptoms. After a miserable two weeks of deterioration, I went to the ER and got diagnosed with telltale pneumonia and was eventually confirmed to have COVID-19. Despite feeling my lungs filling with fluid, I was sent home with prescriptions and instructions to come back if things got worse. This was really hard for me to reconcile, and I honestly contemplated that if things did get worse, I didn't know how I could manage. I had an additional two weeks of intense but gradually improving illness, followed by several more weeks of lingering effects, headache, and malaise. Through all this, the symptoms ranged from debilitating to unusual, like loss of smell and taste. They would improve for a day or two and then decline again. The worst of all was the incredible fear and anxiety of not knowing what was going to come next and whether I was about to die suddenly, drowning in my sleep. I spent pretty much four weeks in bed in misery, pain, discomfort. I lost 20 pounds and was sometimes literally trembling with fear. When not sleeping and when the headache was not terrible, I spent a lot of that time listening to my favorite podcasts. The most favorite being the Slash Filmcast, also decoding Westworld, Storm of Spoilers, still watching Westworld with Joanna Robinson. And I can't tell you how mentally on edge I felt and how much it meant to me to have such comforting, familiar, and friendly repartee to hold on to that brought me back to happier times. It was a lifeline. So just know that in the midst of the seriousness of everything going on right now, it seems we all have different roles and contributions to society. The work you do, while not essential, is nevertheless meaningful and valuable to us listeners, or at least to me, during the most difficult thing I've ever gone through, end quote. Wow. Um, so that comes from Grateful in Chicago. Um, and to Grateful in Chicago, thank you for listening. We're glad that the podcast could provide you uh, with some comfort yeah. in what sounds like an extremely scary and challenging time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Can I say that I really relate to that um, email a lot because something that I do when I'm remember when we used to fly uh, when I'm about to fly because I get like <laughs> nervous during takeoff I listen to fighting in the war room because I'm friends with all those hosts and it's like listening you're just like your friends are there and they're just like mm. talking to you while you're taking off the flight so I should have the slash film uh, into my my uh, rotation if I ever get back on an airplane. 
Yeah, if if when you fly again in twenty years, <laughs> uh-huh, um, in twenty years time, but, I'll queue up the old slash home cast for takeoff. I think it's a pretty amazing coincidence that his parents named him Grateful, and uh, and, then, and, then, and then like the tone of his email was also Grateful. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, mm. That wasn't his real name, but Jeff. Um, mm. But uh, okay, I, I had an experience this week that was kind of a secondhand experience, and. I had a couple conversations with some friends this week. Like I went over to their houses to to pay them a visit and we would sit outside and be masked up or we'd be socially distanced. And I spoke with a couple friends and talked to them about what's going on in their lives. And both of them shared with me, either them or someone they knew was getting pressure to go to a party of some kind with without masks. Like... You could have um, just stopped at getting pressured to go to a party, and I would have been already even pre enraged. even pre COVID pre COVID yeah pre COVID just um, the idea of being pressured to go to a party yeah uh, and <laughs> and my my friends you know um, were actually contemplating it, and this made me realize a couple things. Uh, I, number one, I have eliminated everyone in my life who would ever think about doing that because because like. No right, one is right, asking right. me to go to parties. <laughs> Dave period. has murdered so many people. <laughs> I, I, I have what? I have eliminated yes. everyone in my life. Just like just trail God. of bodies in your yeah, wake. Yeah, no, but I just like uh, the, I, I just, there's no one that would ask me to go to a party maskless that I know because I, I'm just I wouldn't be friends with that person. Oh yeah. Um, but also uh, I, I just didn't know about the level of social pressure. That is out there right now, you know, because because of fact one that I th- these people aren't aren't in my life life anymore. I wasn't aware of the amount of social pressure. So, as an example, um, I had a friend who uh, there there was like a family trip that was going to happen, right? And they, it would need to, they would need to travel across the country to go to this family trip, and presumably these people don't the the family members don't believe COVID is actually a thing, or if they do. They think that uh, wearing a mask is not going to help, and this person felt really bad that they couldn't go with their family. And like, th- there's another person who like uh, had a similar situation, and they were actually going to go because they were so guilted into it. And uh, I was really upset, you know, hearing all this. And I guess I just wanted to use a few minutes at the top of the, the show before we talk about any movies at all <laughs> to say uh, if you are out there. And you're getting pressure to go to maskless events or hang out with people uh, in indoor environments with poorly circulated air. Uh, stand strong, you know. Stand on the side of rationality and public health and considering other people's health. And uh, wear stay the home mask. and listen to us. Yeah, stay home <laughs> and listen to us. Uh, we, God knows we produce a lot of podcasts between the <laughs> four of us. Um, so you know, st- like stand strong. Like the, we're we are with you. we here on the podcast are with you. Yeah. Um, like we believe in what you're doing, and if you need to turn down that invitation to go to that party, uh, just th- know that there's, there's a lot of people who support that decision and think it's the right thing to do. Sure. So I, I think the hard part, though, Dave, is that yeah, realistically, you may lose friends over this. You may lose family over this because mm-hmm. uh, coming down here. Uh, I have some family who they wear masks and everything, but there's also a little more cavalier about, you know, oh, we're, we're going to wear masks and just sit inside and be apart. And, and that's fine. Right. And now I have to tell them you cannot come to my house. Right. You know, and yeah. that is going to linger and they're going to remember that for years and years and years. And 
that's just kind of how it has to be because shit is so crazy now. So yeah, it's, well, it's better to, it's, it's so better tough. to lose some family than to lose some family. Exactly. You know what I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. Well, anyway, so I just thought to the extent that we on the podcast can encourage people to do the right thing. Uh, I would like us to do that. So that's what we're doing right now here at the top of the show. All right. Let's talk about stuff that is of much less consequence than anything <laughs> we just said, which is today the internet tried to cancel Christopher Nolan. And <laughs> it was not a, an earnest cancellation. <laughs> I, I think we were just bored. I think everybody was just bored. And they're like, okay, who's who's the target today? What chairs? What? Yeah. What? It's eventually it's like a it's like a giant uh, a game of bingo. You know, when your number comes up, it's just yeah. everybody's number's gonna come up eventually. You know here's, here's, as, right as, as of recording <laughs> this podcast right now, here is what is on my Twitter page. Entertainment trending. Christopher Nolan trending with Susan Collins, <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh. Um, so that's what kind and of that, day it that is. couple with the guns who I kept seeing on Twitter, yes. and I didn't know what that story was all day, and I felt fine with it. So, <laughs> yeah. So the the Christopher Nolan non earnest cancellation, as Joanna Robinson refers to it, uh, it came from in a conversation that Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman had. The, uh, Variety, the uh, the website and publication, is doing these kind of you know actor talking with actor conversations and putting them on the internet. And I'm going to just read the significant, the, the relevant part of the conversation. Hathaway says, uh, I don't want to contradict you, but you've worked with three directors that don't allow cell phones. Christopher Nolan. Jackman says, oh, that's right. Hathaway says, Christopher Nolan also doesn't allow chairs. I worked with him twice. He doesn't allow chairs. And his reasoning is, if you have chairs, people will sit. And if they're sitting, they're not working. I mean, he has these incredible movies in terms of scope and ambition and technical prowess and emotion. It always arrives at the end under schedule and under budget. I think he's onto something with the chair thing. End quote. <laughs> it's the old, uh, if you got time to lean, you got time yep. to clean philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. You know First thing that came into my head when I heard that, I heard my like my my boss at the movie theater that I worked at said that to me once. Yeah. Um, can I just say something really quickly about this? Please. Uh, Please <laughs> the... <laughs> The the photo that I saw with this, uh, you know, that was largely circling was one of like Chris Nolan sort of directing Anne Hathaway. It's a still from the set of uh, Dark Knight Rises. And it's like from the waist up. But like that was the perfect photo to go with this because uh, if you think about it, uh, Anne Hathaway is wearing insane, crazy, uncomfortable boots on her feet in that photo. Um, there, she, she, like, she is, she is a cat. She's Catwoman. Catwoman. Rises. She's right. got like these stiletto knife boots that she had to wear. Um, so uh, that's just a perfect. Anyway. Um, so uh, I don't mean to call someone out, but I'm going to. Matt Zoller Seitz was doing this thing where he was like, no, no, no. I'm sure that's not really true. And it bothered me a little because I'm like, do you think Anne Hathaway just made up this thing? Uh, so then I, lo- I looked it up to see if other Christopher Nolan actors had like said the chair thing before. So I was like, this can't be the first time it's come up. And uh, Mark Rylance gave an interview um around Dunkirk about it where he's like, yeah, no water bottles, no chairs. Um, and, uh, and then there was one around interstellar as well. So this has like been in the water, uh, this whole, like, <laughs> he doesn't let you use chairs. We're just so bored right now that we're going to like, <laughs> we're just so bored. <laughs> all right. So slurp here, it up. Is, there's no movies. <laughs> here are my thoughts. So basically people were pretty upset about this online because they said, 
Christopher Nolan is ableist. He doesn't hire uh, people who are disabled. Oh. And this yeah. no chair thing is evidence. Think of all the people Christopher Nolan is, is excluding from working with because he doesn't have chairs on set. So I talked with uh, a, a colleague of mine named Adam Rothman, who uh, works in film and has, has been a uh, uh, on-set dresser for many uh, high-profile feature films. And his reaction was, first of all, it's not that no chairs are allowed on set. It, 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 his, this is his opinion. Okay, He says, to clarify, directors, producers, script supervisors, and actors sit in chairs typically. And uh, what Adam's interpretation of Christopher Nolan's policy is, is that these are the people who are not allowed chairs. Like they usually right, have chairs, right. uh, directors, producers, script supervisors, and actors. And then now like no chairs for those people specifically. Um, that's, ne- that's cruel to the script supervisor, by the way. <laughs> if you know what a script supervisor does, yeah. they need a fucking chair. They, you know? they need uh, yeah, something ergonomic and they need a good desk. They need many things. Well, he says here, you'll never see grips, uh, electricians, camera assistants, boom operators, prop people, set dressers, or cinematographers in chairs. Um, People who are freaking out about the idea of not having chairs for everybody on set haven't been on many film sets. I and the majority of the crew I work with on films don't sit down from the time we get there till we leave, except for the lunch break. It's the norm. People are too busy to sit, except for the grips. They love them. They're Apple boxes. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. It's Apple boxes as yeah, far as the eye can the see. Yeah, also, so, I will say, I, I happen to be friends with the woman who was Anne Hathaway's stand-in on The Dark Knight. Is it, are you serious uh, or is this a bit right now you're doing? I'm not doing a bit. This is okay. serious. Yeah. I am friends with the woman who served as the stand-in for Anne Hathaway. Uh, I have not spoken to her about this specifically because it's literally the first time I'm hearing this right now. Um, I intend to contact her and ask her if this is true. But <laughs> the fact that she exists oh. is kind of showing that Anne Hathaway could go and leave and go well, sit places. No, no maybe she, she, she's forced to just stand, you know, in like a yoga pose. That's the best she can do. <laughs> yeah, you have a stand. You have actors yeah. have stand-ins so they can go and leave <laughs> go go do whatever they want go back to their trailers where there are plenty of places to sit yeah so, so I, I i think it's like refer- he's referring to like what's on set like or Anne hathaway is referring to like on set mm-hmm. and also right. like a specific group of people that typically have chairs that aren't allowed to have chairs and in general no one else has chairs anyway now that's not to say so therefore i i could see the argument that like film sets in general are ableist, right, right right like yeah uh and that i think you could very convincingly make that argument um but it doesn't sound like necessarily Christopher Nolan is particularly more ableist than um, other directors. It's certainly, uh, I, I would be shocked if there wasn't a situation where he casts an elderly actor. Ellen Burstyn. In, Ellen in Burstyn the universe, come on. Right, there's no universe where he's like, she will not sit. You know, I I, I just can't. Right. It's hard for me to imagine Michael that. Ka- you know? Michael Caine, I'm sure, yeah. got to sit. Yeah. But yeah. No, I'm sure, I'm sure it's true. Um I I wouldn't I mean I don't I don't know I'm not really in a position to do so but like I didn't know that pe- people were extrapolating it to the ableist um <laughs> part of the conversation and I don't want to like dismiss that in any way I'm sure there are many ways in which the film industry is ableist yeah. um yeah. but like I also don't want to like I mean, I don't think Anne Hathaway was intending for this to be a huge deal when she mentioned it. Uh, I don't think she (laughs) removed the term huge from that sentence. (laughs) And I agree with you. (laughs) But I mean, like, you know, I do want to pay, you know, attention to the way in which 
directors treat their actors sometimes. Actors are incredibly pampered people, it's true, but there's also like, you know, yeah, real real abuses that happen. So yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's true, it's true. Um, I, I'm not sure that this is one of them. I, like for me, you know, Joanna, hearing you talk about. And Hathaway on set of The Dark Knight Rises, I'm like, yeah, you're right. She must have been, like, extremely uncomfortable for a lot of that shoot. And, like, that's probably ultimately worse than, like, the chair thing. Um, so, a- agreed yeah. that it does raise some interesting issues, but I don't know that, like... I mean, I mean, she I, read I, that I, script, yeah. right? That must have been more uncomfortable than the chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you saw the, you saw the I, final like film, what? right? That was ultimately the more torturous experience. Yeah, yeah. So, as, uh, as, hmm. as somebody who's been on my fair share of sets... Yes. And has never been above the line, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, I will tell you, it's nice to have a chair. <laughs> it's very nice <laughs> to have a chair because it's so uh, tedious. It is. It, I don't know if people really understand yeah. how movies are made, but it's 98% not doing anything <laughs> and 2% doing everything in the most high pressure stakes. Now again, grips, uh, uh, camera operators, all those uh, lighting people, they're all working their asses off nonstop. They're all moving. Sh- I like, I, I it, it blows my mind that anyone wants to do those jobs because the hours are insane. The amount of work that they do and they're constantly doing stuff that they don't even need to be doing. Like they'll do a whole thing and everybody will be going 90 miles an hour and doing a thing. And then they'll be like, nah, we don't need that. And they'll break it all down and do it. Again. It's, it's the most incredible series of things that you'll ever see it's it, it's a an entire army of people that just are used <laughs> to the you know squeezed like a like a sponge you know just wrung out um and they seem to want to do it so that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is like you're saying uh, dave there is a group of people for whom the experience of making a movie is waiting for hours at a time and then doing a thing for a, a couple of minutes yeah. and then waiting for more hours. And that is the process of making movies. That really is how it is for most of the people that you see on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, Adam uh, uh, Rothman also continued in this uh, series of messages to me. I just want to read for more context. He says, I have never been on a film set where if someone actually needed a chair or a place to sit, they weren't given one. The norm on a set is just that most people aren't sitting because it's always a race to make the day. So there aren't just chairs lying around because there's already so much equipment in the way. Certain directors have certain rules to make the set function more efficiently. When I worked with Catherine Bigelow, it was no director chairs on set. When I worked with Martin Campbell, it was no talking on set. Both uh, rules made the sets more efficient and everyone involved benefited. Something that people aren't considering, on most film sets, the majority of the crew is on their feet all day, but the director and producers spend 80% of their time sitting in a chair while everyone else stands. I would venture to bet his crews appreciate that he doesn't just sit down in a comfy chair most of the day while they are standing, or at best, sitting on a hard wooden box, end quote. Anyway... Some various perspectives for you. According to Barry Keon on Dunkirk, uh, he also bans water. No water bottles are allowed on set either, mm-hmm. which is fine. That, I would, I would, I would get, again, we're giving him the benefit of the doubt here, but I would guess that has more to do with the bottle and not the water. Absolutely. Like, I don't, no, I don't, I don't think, think I don't think Christopher Nolan's at home being like, and I will desiccate them and I will give <laughs> them thrombosis. Don't you think that's how people hear it? They're like, what a monster. He doesn't let people drink water. And it's like, right. no, it's the bottles that, because 
there's there we've seen how many movies now where it's like hey in that scene there's a Starbucks he was, he's cup trying to avoid corner. a game of yeah. thrones situation yes and, and those things are everywhere and also they're massive pollutants you know it's like these are not these are not inherently bad things to outlaw on your set and i would be shocked if he's not giving copious amounts of water to anybody who needs it at any point right <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 uh so anyway i guess the overall encouragement we have from this segment of the podcast in is conclusion, just, in conclusion, nothing. just dig a little bit deeper before you jump to conclusions. Yeah, you about can how... cancel Christopher Nolan for other things, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. How many yeah. how many wives has he killed? All the dead wives. Time? Let's cancel yeah, Chris Nolan for that. Yeah. Uh, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Much a much worthier cause. Um, okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Joanna Robinson, what have you been watching this week? Oh, uh, I caught up with um, a great show that just wrapped up its second season, um, the Harley Quinn animated series um, that's been on the DC streaming platform. Um, And then I think you can rent it elsewhere. And I believe it's coming to HBO Max eventually. Um, But this is a show that I had heard a lot of great things about. And I'm not a huge, like, um, superhero animated um, you know, I know that there's been a lot of things to admire in the DC animated world over the years. People have always tried to get me to watch this, like Carrie Russell, Wonder Woman movie that they did like Teen Titans. There's just like a bunch of stuff that people really like, but, um, I heard the Harley Quinn thing was like something truly, truly special. Uh, so I finally checked it out and, uh, it is fantastic it's really really fun it's got like whatever rating it needs to have in order for them to just like curse up a storm which is just sort of uh, an oddly dissonant thing to see um and it just starts it starts like full barrel just like this is not kid friendly at all it's really like gruesome uh, and, and, but just mostly hilarious. It's just really, really funny, really meta poking fun at like superheroes in general and DC specifically. There's like one, uh, episode where like the framing n- narrative is like a guy with a, um, a last Jedi, uh, like fix the last Jedi t-shirt talking to like a guy with like a release the Snyder cut t-shirt. Um, so there's just like a, there's a lot of great, great stuff going so it on. So features the best of humanity. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it pokes like gentle fun at them without like, um, you know, really, uh, you know, biting the hand that feeds it. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a really, really, uh, fun show really capitalizes on, on the character of Harley Quinn and why we like her so much. Uh, great voice cast. Kaylee Cuoco is doing Harley Quinn, but we've got Lake Bell as Poison Ivy. Uh, Tony Hale does a bunch of voices. Jason Alexander, Alan Tudyk, uh, Jim Rash, James Adomian, just like great, great voice actors in here doing a lot of really good work. And I just had a blast watching it. So, um, Harley Quinn animated, check it out. I really recommend it. All right, that's the Harley Quinn animated series, and will soon be available on HBO Max. Um, so yeah, um, all right. Let's talk about a couple of things I had a chance to watch. Uh, and Jeff, I think you also watched this: the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, starring oh Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Correct? I saw that too. Yes. Oh, did we yes. just saw it? I okay. also yeah. saw it. Yeah. Oh, okay. We all saw it. We all saw the Eurovision Song Contest. All right, <laughs> it's well, our uh, it's our feature review this week. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, Joanna, let's. What do you think of it? What do you think of the Eurovision Song Contest? Uh, okay. I, 
I might be the like sole dissenter here. I don't know. I like I saw a lot of people in my timeline really really liked it. I watch the Eurovision Song Contest, the real one, every year. I'm a huge fan of it. I've been watching it for a really long time. I really like that there's cameos from like actual Eurovision winners. That was fun. Mm-hmm. But overall, not my favorite Will Ferrell comedy. Uh, though Dan Stevens was fantastic. Gotta love Dan Stevens just being super weird. He also plays a super genius evil villain monkey in Kipo, I believe. Uh, the the anime Kipo series. and the Wonder Beasts, yeah, 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 yeah. So there is he. He is really going for weird roles right now, and I'm digging. I would that. recommend uh, Dan Stevens in the Guest, which I believe is streaming right sure, now on Netflix sure. as yeah. well. He's great. That's in not that. weird. Yeah. That's not weird. That's just Dan Stevens being a badass. I'm talking like well, weird. What? What I love about the guest, the guest is like one of the biggest first things he did after he left Downton Abbey. And he's like, guess what? Uh, Cousin Matthew (laughs) got super ripped and now he's really sexy and creepy. The guest. That's that's that movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I was not a huge fan of the Eurovision Song Contest. I, uh, I thought it was completely inoffensive and mildly mm-hmm. fun and enjoyable. Rachel McAdams is a treasure and it's so great to see her in another comedic role. Loved sure. her in Game Night and she is by far the best thing about this movie. And by still far. somehow also wasted. You know, by, the best by, thing but still absolutely wasted <laughs> by this movie. I hate by this arc for mind. her character. Uh-huh. <laughs> What'd you say? Sorry. I just hate that arc for her character. I was like, this <laughs> yes. can't be the plot. And I was like, yes. oh, this is the plot. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The overall, the movie's way too plotty. It's way too plotty. Yeah. It's, it just, yeah, it kind of gets, it gets hijacked by its own plottiness. And it's like, we're not, there is not what we signed up for. Absolutely zero reason this movie needed to be two hours long. Oh God. I got, I got Good an God. hour into this movie and I'm like, oh, they're, <laughs> this is, they're about to wrap this thing up. And then. Nope. Not only were they not about to wrap this thing up, there was another hour left of the film. It's just too much. Um, I, I couldn't help but think like what I was imagining like the Lonely Island version of what this yeah. movie would be like. Yeah, and also yeah. like also a secret pop star sequel, please. Like let's make that yeah. happen. And thinking of that and how much I love pop star, this just felt like such a such a complete waste of time. Because it's not it's like, like- po- sorry, mm-hmm. go uh, go ahead, Jonah. Well, go. I was gonna have you guys ever watched the real Eurovision song contest? A bit. Not much. It- like I can, I can definitely send you guys some highlights on YouTube. Uh, it's like a three-hour event. It's like the Olymp- It's the craziest thing. Like it's amazing. But I just want to say that like there's so much weirdness, like super, super, super weird, 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 cool stuff that happens at Eurovision. That I'm like, why wasn't this movie just like wall-to-wall weird acts? Like right. we didn't need too. to hear their song. F- five times i wanted to see much weirder cool stuff from other countries as well up there it, it it didn't feel like they were leaning into the wacky songs like it didn't feel like they yeah, yeah. the the songs weren't really a joke they were actually trying to be kind of catchy good songs and there's a there's a medley that happens in the middle of this movie the that best thing wor- of the movie it's yeah. worth watching the movie for just for that it's it's, it's on youtube it's just like a clip now so yes that'll be the clip we all see that's what that's when all the real Eurovision people have cameos, uh, yeah. as you, as you might imagine, and like, yeah. And what's true about the real Eurovision song contest is some dumb, boring ballad often does win, so that's true. But like, it's also it's also like incredibly corrupt and known to be incredibly corrupt, <laughs> and like the way in which the like you know because as uh, you know as the premise of the movie is like the country that wins gets to host the the show the, the following one. year, yeah. and like the premise of this film is like. 
um, you know, one corrupt politician like thinks that Iceland can't support that, and so is like putting forth their worst sort of thing, and like so they won't win. But like, what's true is that like the countries are so desperate to win because it's a huge tourism boon for them, or it was in pre-COVID times that like. The, they like they buy the the wins often it's like really corrupt and like that would be fun to know about but like that Major is like League soccer yeah <laughs> it's just like left out of it i'm like there's so much like cool weird weird stuff to explore with eurovision and this is this is the best we came up with okay <laughs> yeah i think uh the pop star comparison is a really good one because i think that yeah the songs in that movie were so yes. i still listen to them, so good you know so they're good. so outlandish and hilarious uh, and that that is not the case with it. maybe the Dan Stevens song in this movie, right? Not that's, even really that's that. That's pretty good. Not, um, I mean, not really. It's not. Yeah. It's fine. Maybe it's I was worried by the fact that, that it was him it. singing it, yeah. you know, and yeah. doing the dance and stuff. Um, but uh, I mean, he did make me question my sexuality in this movie. I will say that. Um, did he actually get means, to sing? This means you're human and alive. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which means I have a pulse. Um, but yeah, uh, the the songs are just not really they're they're earnest. You know, they're not um, silly in any way. Uh, so uh, it, right. it, it was they a, should a have been. down in that regard. Yeah, yeah, they should have been silly songs. Yeah. And it's just, it's just campy odd. And Sorry, like go ahead, Jen. Costumes. It's like, it's like, um, it's like as if I'm trying to think if the Cutting Edge does this because I was reminded of the Cutting Edge. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that phenomenal ice skating film, um, but like, uh, like why show us the same routine over and over again? Show us some other routines, man. <laughs> Get weird. Get really weird. So yeah. it just was like also just such a bizarre decision to have. All the leads played by Americans doing Icelandic accents. Um, sure. Although I think the, the bit is the the Americans in the movie are Icelandic actors too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think I got that, but it's just yeah. like, it, I'm just like, <laughs> I, I know it's not. I know it's not. Yeah. But I'm just like, yeah. this feels kind of racist to me, <laughs> but I know it's not. What's well, it like, like? It's a weird way to like poke fun at their culture. I guess. Like, I wonder. It just what feels like punching down is. a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, they, they have so little. Come on. Also, the fact that Iceland. But I just read a New Yorker article this week about how Iceland basically has beat coronavirus. So it's yep. like. Yeah, kind of my friend is about. Yeah. <laughs> my friend is about to go there to do like a scientific study for a couple months, and basically she told me what they're going to do is they're going to take her temperature at the airport. They have yeah. a super fast test. I, we we talked about how sometimes there's false negatives, but like you take that test at the airport, and then if you clear it, you're allowed to go into the country. That's what's yeah. going on in Iceland Man. right now. So yeah. Iceland, you know, what? Great. If, it ain't, if if it ain't Bjork, don't fix it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it, it does sound great. Also, like it's fascinating to see like images of New Zealand too. Like they have sporting <laughs> events, no masks, you know, because uh, they've beat it already. There's no new cases. Or we very, won. We won, everybody. Very yeah. few new cases. It's like it's almost like organized sporting events are like your your reward as a country for beating coronavirus, basically. Um, anyway, I'm, I, I'm one last thing I want to say about that movie is that uh, at a certain point. It's going to be not charming anymore for Will Ferrell to play yes. a 22 year old. No, no, no. Jeff, Jeff, I want to <laughs> see this going until he's 70. I want to I see the man child happening. Yeah. I was just going to say, but we're not there yet, right? We're not at that point. We are, it is still just funny to have a 50 something year old man playing a 22 year old Icelandic yeah, boy. Yeah. You, you know? thought Step Brothers was the apex of this, but no, they'll keep going. 
they will yeah. keep going. Uh, one other thought: uh, How does Pierce Brosnan keep getting handsomer? He's like, more handsome now. Than so ever. much more yes. handsome. Come on, he's, he's like a fine wine. He gets better Damn as it. he ages. So, well, that's our mixed. Even though we all watched it, uh, very few of us apparently liked it that much. <laughs> But, but this that made is... me feel so much better, guys, because seriously, my timeline, I was like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills to quote I, better I Will definitely Ferrell saw movie. people, and people I love and admire like this <laughs> movie, and yeah, I don't know how. I, I, a friend was like, I cried at the end. It was <laughs> so amazing. I, and I felt bad because I'm usually the guy that cries in the movies, and I did not did not feel that in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rough. Um, but anyway. That is Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, and it's streaming right now on Netflix. It is time once again for me to hop in here and tell you about our sponsor, Manscaped. Oh my goodness. It's summertime, and in summertime, we like to take our shirt off. We like to wear fewer clothes. We like to feel good about ourselves, but sometimes, you know, if you're you're the kind of guy that got the hair on the chest, hair on the back, allow me to introduce you to Manscaped. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. They've got all the tools necessary for you to look great, to get that body hair in the shape you want it. Maybe you want it just uh, nicely trimmed. Maybe you want it to spell your name. I don't know. You could do it all with the Perfect Package 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the Essential Lawnmower 3.0, which is a waterproof, cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to help you round out your manscaping routine. This is by far the best trimmer on the market for chest shaving. It's a third generation trimmer. It's got this thing called Skin Safe Technology completely designed to reduce manscaping accidents. What does that mean? Well, you know how if you're mowing the lawn and the sprinkler head has popped up and you accidentally run the mower over the sprinkler head? Bad news! Well, in this analogy, the lawn is your chest hair and the sprinkler head is your nipple. Do not let that happen. That is why Manscaped gives you the skin safe technology. You don't want to get an accidental nipple piercing when you didn't want one, right? You don't want that. You can adjust the settings to the length you like, stay on top of it with almost no effort at all. Plus, it comes with all this other cool stuff, including the Manscaped Crop Preserver, which is an anti chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. Now, you may be chuckling to yourself ball deodorant and moisturizer. Why do I need that? You need that. You need that. Let me tell you, I know we're not walking around a lot these days. We're staying home. I know that maybe uh, you're not showing off your body hair like you used to. Treat yourself. Feel good with some anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You need that. You need it. You're going to feel better. It's got a testy toner, the Crop Reviver. A testy toner. It's designed to give you a pep in your step right there in your hoobajoob region. Yes. Plus, you can subscribe to the Perfect Package. You get a new blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. They make it easy to make you look great. For a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, which is a $39 value add, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. Both of those are free gifts. Plus, we'll give you 20% off and free shipping with the code FILMCAST at Manscaped.com. 
Always get the right tools for the job. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And the code FILMCAST, F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T, all one word. Trim your chesticles with the besticles. I also had a chance to watch another movie. I'll mention it real quick. It's called Spelling the Dream. Um, uh, It's kind of a modern-day streaming version of Spellbound, but it's... uh, it's a different uh, uh, you know, set of people that it's it's following, obviously. Um, and it's about how uh, Indian Americans make up 1% of the United States population, but apparently make up like 26 of the last 31 winners of the Scripps National Spelling Bee. And it explores why that might be the case. And it follows several uh, contestants as they uh, try to win the grand prize. Uh, and this is just completely feel-good story, feel better about the world, feel better about the concept of intellectualism as it relates to America, feel like there's hope for the future, you know? The movie's like 80 minutes long, you know? If 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 you want something that's just like completely light uh, watching and there's no, no emotional consequences other than like a, a vague sense of pleasantness, then you should watch this movie, Spelling the Dream. Uh, so I, I think it's not a particularly deep movie. It's not a particularly, you know, thought provoking movie or anything like that. Um, it doesn't explore these people's lives in any way other than their relationship to spelling. Uh, I think, uh, I've heard Spellbound is a better film. I haven't actually seen that movie yet, but I, I think I might after watching this. Um, and I'll just say that I also think that the documentarians in Spelling the Dream got a little bit unlucky in terms of who they were following. Because I don't know if you guys heard this, but in a recent script spelling bee, uh, there was an eight-way tie for first place. What? This was in, this was in 2019, <laughs> right? Wow. So the movie opens with showing the 2019 script spelling bee and how there is an eight-way tie. Because basically, they just kept throwing dictionary words at these kids, and they the, the kids kept not getting it wrong. So they're just wow. like, okay, we we can't keep going. Like this will just go on forever. So we're going to take an unprecedented step that if you get the next word right, you will be a co-champion of this contest. And so all eight kids got it right and it was an eight-way tie. That was in 2019. But the kids I feel who, like that has to be the last time you do the spelling bee contest. Like, oh, I guess <laughs> we can't do it anymore. I mean, those spelling kids are freaking over. legends. Like yeah. legends. And you broke uh, the contest. It's over. We're done. We can't do it. Well, I mean, you you say that, and that's the thing is like the movie begins with that, and it's like, oh man, that's like a really interesting story. I would love to hear what's happening with those kids, but uh, <laughs> no, the movie follows actually the kids who were in the 2017 script spelling bee, and I think they were making the movie, and then like the 2019 one happened, and they're like, well, this is obviously way more interesting than anything we covered in the movie, so we have to show it. Um, but yeah, they did not actually cover that one, so they covered. The one that happened two years before, the most interesting one that ever happened. Um, so I felt a little bad for the message from a documentarian <laughs> perspective. Uh, but nonetheless, still a very, very pleasant watch. It's Spelling the Dream. Jeff, usually when I talk about movies I've been watching, um, you recoil in disgust and fear. Uh, does this sound like something you might want to check out? Yeah, absolutely. I loved, um, you just said the title and I'm forgetting it again. Spellbound? Spellbound. Spellbound. I loved that movie. It's delightful. Um, Heartwarming. And invariably, these kids are always like the best people also, you know? 
there's there's some direct link between uh being a a high level spelling bee champion and actually being a good human <laughs> that that is always very fun to watch so yeah I, I i have no doubt this movie was uh much better than your average you know uh, penis museum documentary or whatever uh which is all by the way was based in iceland uh mm. to tie it all back couple of things, actually, now that you mentioned it, that I want to bring up about Spelling the Dream. First of all, there is a seven-year-old kid called Akash in this movie. I, I think his name is Akash. Um, who is so adorable. It is worth watching the movie just to see this kid spell a 44-letter word, uh, word. You know, he is incredible and uh, amazing and very cute. And uh, look out for him when you, when you watch Spelling the Dream. There's also another kid in the movie who is described by his friends as the Michael Jordan of spelling. <laughs> and he shows the, the filmmakers his system for how he is able to perform so well at the spelling bee. His dad just says with complete flat affect, he says, you know, in, a, in the average dictionary, there's 425,000 words. And what we realized was that if you distill those words down to their base elements, so for instance... In the, if you say like sleep, right? You don't then you, you don't need to include like sleeping or slept or whatever like that. Then we could distill it down to actually one hundred twenty five thousand words. And if you know those one hundred twenty five thousand words, you can basically get any single word they throw at you in the spelling bee. Uh, and I just love how they framed memorizing one hundred twenty five thousand words as a uh, an easier task, yeah, uh, than the four hundred fifty thousand words. Uh, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and that kid also does this, there's a scene where he's like, he has the words like sounded out on his screen, right? So he has the, the pronunciation of the word. And then uh, his job is then to produce the correct spelling. But rather than spell it out by voice, he types it out because it's faster to do that. So he goes down this whole line of words, just like typing out the actual word from the like phonetic pronunciation of it on screen. It's like watching Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. You know, when you, whenever you saw, like, Data type anything, he would type, like, superhuman fast. It was like watching that, basically. This kid <laughs> typing out all these spellings. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a very interesting look into people who spell really, really hardcore. And the movie Spelling the Dream. Check it out on Netflix. Okay. Jeff Kanata, what else have you been watching? Well, I had a chance to check out a doc- another documentary on Netflix uh, called Magnetic. Have you guys heard of this? I saw no. this popped up on my screen and I watched about 30 minutes of it and I was like, this is very impressive. Yeah, that's that's the that's the experience. Now, just repeat that like, I don't know, seven times, I think, because basically what it is, is 20 to 30 minute chunks could very well have been short, uh, short series of episodes. They could have just done them as episodes, but it's one big, long documentary, but it's these segments that are for different folks, wildly different activities all of them extreme sports. So it is the new sort of 2020 version of an extreme sport documentary. Um, but most of the, I mean, not all of them, it, it gets to some stuff that's just, just, you know, kite surfing and stuff like that. But it starts, the first few of them are all things that could kill you very easily. You know, surfing the biggest wave in the world that crashes against, you know, a sheer rock face and uh, skiing down an insanely steep, untouched by humans peak in the Alps or something. Uh, That's the one I saw. I saw the wave one, and it's like a wave as tall as a building, basically, right? Oh, yeah. They're 80 feet 
to haul waves, you know, and you have to be, um, it's really fascinating. They talk about how you have to be uh, jet skied in, you know, you pull them behind the jet skis to get to the waves, but that the, the job of jet ski driving is yeah. really even more dangerous than the surfing. Like you have to be a supreme level jet ski rider to even understand how to do this. And if you want to be the surfer, you have to also learn how to be the jet ski rider. Cause it's just the two of you out there right. and they show like a wipeout where the, the jet ski kind of hits a wave wrong and the rider of the jet ski gets propelled off the front and the guy hanging onto the back on his surfboard has to leap up in a moment's notice and take over the controls of the jet ski to circle it back around and save the life of the guy that just got catapulted off the ski. It's wild. But that's just one like 20, 25 minute segment of this movie that goes to all these different places. It goes, you know, it, it does all these different kinds of things, you know, mountain biking down extreme mountains and it just it's a it's a medley. Right. It's a it's a um, anthology of all of these different and they're fascinating. And the thing that I really was struck by as somebody who grew up loving these kinds of things, I don't know if any of you guys know the name Warren Miller, but. I was addicted to Warren Miller movies when I was a kid. Warren Miller is a very famous um, snow skiing documentarian, and he had a, a series of very famous snow skiing movies. And I ate those up as a kid. Uh, not as a, I mean, I was a kid, but I, like high school um, when I was in the ski club and I was really into snow skiing and um, watched these movies like Steep and Deep, you know, these Warren M Miller movies that were fantastic. And the thing I'm struck by in watching the 2020 version of that kind of thing is drone photography has completely revolutionized this shit, man. It is it drone drone photography is how extreme sports were meant to be shot from the beginning. Like yeah. this is these are the angles that you want to be able to see <laughs> this stuff at. These are like the impossible positions of a camera that you need to really absorb what's happening on a visceral level. And you know, I've always been impressed by the the camera crews on this stuff. We talked about this with, um, you know, Free Solo and and other movies where the camera crew is as much the story as the as the the subject of the documentary because it's it, the, the act of filming these things is a, a feat in and of itself. But with drone photography, like the movie starts and like the one of the very first credits that comes up on the screen is like directed by, and then it's like drone operators and it's they get it like they get it there's like a there's like 12 drone operator names that come up and it's like oh yeah they're the stars of this movie because the drone shots are bonkers and gorgeous i mean this is i'm watching on netflix in 4k and the photography is stunning so i i recommend it. it's called magnetic and i i got a, i mean it's you know it's one of those things you veg out on we ate we're eating junk food my wife and i and watching this these guys and gals uh, risk their lives to, for no reason at all, uh, and it's it's good fun. Uh, yeah, I was I was gonna ask, how did this uh, get onto your? How did it make its way onto your screen, Jeff? Because if you're like me, you're browsing through Netflix for something to watch, and then you're like, oh, that looks kind of cool, and then you put yes. it on. Is that right? hundred percent. In fact, it was my wife who said, "Ooh, can we watch that thing? Can we watch that one?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds awesome." And she and she was all into uh, 
watching the surfing because the surfing is the one that like you know that advertises and we weren't sure if the whole movie was surfing right. um but it very quickly isn't and it is all these other things which is great because it kind of keeps your attention over a longer period because it's constantly switching up and you're introduced to new characters and their story and why they're doing the dumbest thing that they could possibly be doing uh it's all these like 20 22 year olds who just don't understand you know the frontal cortex isn't developed enough for them to have any fear yet you know <laughs> There's a lot of these movies by what's called NDG Cinema uh, or Nuit de la Glisse movies, I think. Uh, And they're on on Netflix. And it's very rare to see co-branding on Netflix. Like you usually see it's a Netflix movie or just the title of the movie. But then you see NDG Cinema and Netflix. And it's all these like movies that are about kind of extreme sports or people who take these uh, high risk, uh, you know, activities and... Uh, I, I, there are many of these on on Netflix, so I'd, I'd, uh, I, I'm impressed by what I've seen so far of Magnetic. I check it out. Jenna Robinson, does the uh, does the extreme sports with uh, incredible photography have any appeal for you? Uh, Free Solo made me want to like hide under <laughs> any something and like hold on to the ground. Um, so <laughs> I can definitely feel the impact of something like that. Yeah, uh-huh, um, yeah. it's not it's not my number one go to, but like the yeah like. Jeff's point about um, drone photography and how it's really opened up this whole thing. All right. Um, I don't think anyone was allowed chairs in any of these movies either. <laughs> <laughs> you're either uh, moving or you're you're not working. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jeff. Uh, you, you know, there is a movie that I saw all over uh, iTunes, Apple TV this weekend, and I saw a bunch of Twitter ads about it. I, it was advertised everywhere. It was a big deal. Steve Carell, Rose Byrne. It's John Stewart's return to the uh, writing directing gig after many many years. Uh, it's the movie Irresistible, and yeah, I thought about I thought about watching it, but then I also remembered the extremely painful speech I gave everyone two weeks ago about how I didn't want to spend twenty dollars on a movie that wasn't a major blockbuster tentpole. Twenty dollars, <laughs> yes, nineteen ninety nine for nineteen ninety nine to rent. Yes, Jonah Robinson. Forty eight hours, you get to watch it. Can I ask you a question? Do you what do you think about 1999 to rent a movie like Irresistible? Do you feel like that's that's a no a for me? That's, that's a, a no, no for me. For me. Mm. But but what where is there, were is you there, guys a few days ago? <laughs> what, what is the class of movie that you feel would be worth? Is there a class of movie that you feel would be worth renting for 1999 for two days? Um, I mean, certainly Tenet. I would rent uh, for 1999. <laughs> yes. Um, Fuck yes. Black Widow, I would rent for yeah. 1999. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. If it needs to feel like an event, yeah. it needs to feel like an uh, epic yeah. thing, and then yeah. it's like, then it's like, okay, twenty dollars for two days, I, I can yeah. do that. Not you know more more like Mulan, less like King of Staten Island, basically. Okay, yeah. all that said, Jeff can I, so I I wanted to watch it because I'm like I, I want to talk about it on the slash filmcast. It's very topical. It Same. also got completely eviscerated in the reviews. Jeff mm. Kanata, what do you think of Irresistible? Yeah, I made it through a half an hour the first time I sat down to watch this. And then I came back to it and made it another 10 minutes because I was like, I had my I had my 48 hour window. I better just I spent $20 on this. I'm going to get through it. And I put on another 10 minutes. And my wife was like, can we watch the thing about the surfing? And I was like, yeah, let's. That, that title is very presumptuous, I guess. You know, they're really, really selling it on you. I can't overstate my love of Jon Stewart. I can't. Uh, I, you know, there is a 12-year period of my life 
Yeah. When he was literally my daily everything. Even even pre daily <laughs> you know? show. Like that guy, yeah. he, he was great. He was great to watch and listen to. Smart, uh, cogent, um just I just I, I looked up to him at a time in my life when uh, it was important, you know, the entire Bush administration it was <laughs> it was very important for me to have that uh, that voice in my life. And so, uh, you know, I love Steve Carell. I love Rose Byrne. This whole cast, the whole cast. I mean, um, Chris Cooper, Chris Cooper's Chris movie. Cooper. What's her, what's her name? I love, um, uh, the, ter- the last Terminator movie. Um, Mackenzie Davis, mm-hmm. Mackenzie Davis. She's fantastic. I love her. Love her. She's in this. It just felt like John Stewart could have his pick of whoever anybody. Yes. John Stewart calls up the phone and says, Hey, can we be my movie. People say yes. Right. Yep. As well. They should. Written and directed by John Stewart. I'm there. I'm paying the 1999. Uh, but boy, this was a massive disappointment to me. It is not a bad movie. It just is a flat kind of nothing movie. It, it really is very pat. It it it, it wants to be um, endearing and sweet. The story is uh, of this this homespun Wisconsin former Marine, played by Chris Cooper perfect casting, who uh, stands up in a city council meeting and says some powerful things and someone shoots it on their their tel- on their cell phone. <laughs> their telephone. What an oldie I am. Uh, their <laughs> cell phone and it gets to the eyes of this major democratic strategist who decides that Chris Cooper is going to be a national figure. And then he sort of comes to Wisconsin and he just doesn't understand the homespun folks in Wisconsin, and they don't understand his big city ways. And um, and then the then the Rose Byrne plays the Republican strategist, and they come and they have a relationship. And again, I have not seen the end of this movie, so maybe it all turns around and gets really great. But uh, I, it just wasn't anything. It just didn't feel like a good use of my time. It's a two-hour movie, and I didn't even make it through the first hour. So, like I said, there's a lot of the movie I have not seen, but boy, I just wanted it to be entertaining or insightful or endearing. I mean, it was slightly endearing. There's there's some good performances, but it just it just felt like I, it really pains me to say because a I spent money on this movie, but also <laughs> but also I love I love everyone involved. I love everyone involved, and it just felt like a nothing burger, you know. Did you did you see Rosewater? I did see Rosewater. Yeah, it's. Were you a fan of that? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Okay. I did you like it? I thought it. I felt similarly to that as the way you described this, which just just feels like flat. Like, uh, was John Stewart incredibly capable political comedian to take us through the Bush era? Yes. Is he a good actor or director? I think the answer might be no. You know what yeah. I mean, and that's okay. Yeah, you can. I certainly liked Rosewater more than this, but Rosewater also was not my favorite movie of the year. Yeah, well, but I just certainly liked it more than this. Yeah. Uh, I so you saw Irresistible, Joanna? Is that right? No. Mm-mm. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I uh, I've heard there's actually like a a, a twist ending to this movie um, oh, maybe. that actually makes it there. worse than oh. what you saw before. Um. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, Walter Chaw is one of my favorite film critics, and he gave this movie zero out of four stars. And he had this sentence oh, about man. it that just is so 
brutal. He says, um, as a metaphor for what's going on in the world right now, uh, Irresistible is on the nose. As a movie, it's an assault more objectionable than any Lars von Trier or Michael Haneke miserablest exercise because it clothes itself in an affable sheaf of menial liberal equivocation. But underneath, it's this boiling nihilistic condemnation of every single one of you fucking idiots who let it get so bad, end quote. Jeff, do you feel any of that when you're watching the movie? No, no, no. I, I, I just thought it didn't. It didn't. I would have loved to have, for it to have some teeth. It didn't have any teeth. Yeah, I heard uh, it was like a like a weak veep, basically. Yeah, it, that's a, actually a really great way of describing it. it. It it felt like a wet sponge, you know, just sort of like sitting there, <laughs> not doing anything. You know, it just it it. it um, I wish it had some teeth. It. I mean, I'll explain one scene to you, right? He, the the character played by Steve Carell, decides that he's going to get this Chris Cooper character to win, become mayor of the town that he's in. He's going to run for mayor, and they're going to take over this, and he's going to run it. And then Chris Cooper says, I'll only do it if you are my guy. You know, he says, you have to run it. So he goes, okay. So he decides to staff up this little Wisconsin town and collect all the people that Chris Cooper knows and make them operate a phone bank and reach out and try to get donations and try to make this into a real campaign. And so there's a scene where he, Steve Carell, is in a room with all these folks, these Wisconsinites, on the phones, or sitting at, at you know, old-timey rotary phones. And uh, he, said, he gives this speech about how, you know, we're going to, you're going to talk to them, you're going to ask for donations, and you're going to do da da and he's like, okay, everybody, here we go. And they, on the count of three, we're going to go. And they go. And then everybody's phone in the room rings. And they all answer it. And they hear the people in the room saying, hi, I'm calling on behalf of the running for mayor. And would you like, and they all look around and Steve Crow goes, hey, everybody, you're reading off the staff contact list, not the phone list. And everybody sort of chuckles oh, and goes, man. oh, we did. We read off the wrong list. Don't you hate when that happens? And it's that's hilarious. the scene. Like the whole, like it's not a joke that they did that. It's just sort of this occurrence. <laughs> it's not played as a joke. It's not played as like, here's this wacky thing that happens where they read the wrong list. It's this like kind of homespun, aw shucks, look at how simple these folks are. But also it's not so bad. And oh, we just had a little chuckle moving on and the whole movie feels like that it's just like why was that scene in there is it to show that people are dumb well no because it's trying really hard to soften that moment and make it not seem like they did a dumb thing but it's also not funny it's not a joke you know and listen i know from not funny jokes i've said four or five in this very episode Well, I'm sorry to hear Irresistible was very resistible, um, but you can rent it for $20 right now. $20? (laughs) (laughs) I switched over. We literally switched over from that to the Eurovision Song Contest. So it was quite an evening. This is bad, but at least I've already paid for it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Not paying extra. Before we move to our review, uh, let's thank all the people that donated to the podcast this week. We've got to thank Rex Chen, Heather Foster. And also, uh, Flora from Toronto, who writes in, My husband, Mizan, turns 40 on July 3rd, as does his best friend, Ram, since age 10, who both really miss going to the movies. Would you mind shouting out their birthdays, please? 
when you have a chance. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Mizan? Is it Mizan? 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 Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry. Mizan last name plus? What? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, thank you for your donations. If you want to support the podcast paypal.me slash filmcast that's paypal.me slash lord filmcast or go to slashfilm.com click on the slash filmcast tab use the paypal links on the side of the page never donate if it in any way causes you any hardship or takes away from other worthier causes that you think are worth the money but if you want to throw some cash our way that's the way to do it uh, and if you want to support us for free just go to apple podcast leave a star rating for us or a review it really does help all right let's get to our review of shirley <laughs> To our suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we can find a place. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing in here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. Do you know what it's like to have a secret? What are you up to? That girl, what do you think? Trite and a bit trashy, but uh, give it a go. I like you, Rosie. Can I trust you? I feel like we're in the Scottish play. On the verge of madness. What will happen? That was from the trailer for Shirley, the new film by director Josephine Decker. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A famous horror writer finds inspiration for her next book after she and her husband take in a young couple. Jenna Robinson, when I think about movies like these that are named after characters... Right, mm-hmm. we had a very lengthy debate about Capone recently, where Jeff Kanata could not stomach the name Capone for that movie, <laughs> because uh, in his opinion, if you name the movie after someone, it should like represent their essence in some way. Am I capturing mm. that correctly, Jeff? Uh, fair, yeah, yeah, fair, yeah. Um, and so I guess you know when I I, I generally don't like like bio like conventional biopic movies, you know, like hey, we're going to try to cover this whole person's life in one movie. I just think it's very Right. Uh, I, I'm not a fan. Um, right. I'm also not a fan of movies where uh, they rely too much on your external knowledge of the person. You know, like mm. really, I think a great movie, a great movie based on a person's life should be able to stand on its own. If you've never heard of Shirley Jackson, it still should be a good movie. Uh, so n- knowing that that might not be your definition, uh, all that said, curious, do you feel like Shirley stands on its own as a good movie, even if I have no idea who Shirley Jackson is? Yes. I do. Um, I feel like uh, it's so taking away Shirley Jackson's life. um, You know, I think the thing that might help people connect best with this is having ever read anything by Shirley Jackson. I'm I'm getting to your part where you're like, I don't want any homework. I just want the movie. (laughs) But like, if you've read any of Shirley Jackson's work, that like creepy, but like really compelling atmospheric uh dread uh that runs through all of her stuff i feel like they captured it so perfectly in this movie like the experience of watching this movie for me was like the experience of of reading one of her stories where you're just sort of like 
claustrophobic a bit, but you can't look away and you don't know what's going to happen, but you know, it's going to be bad. And, um, and I thought it was, I, I, I didn't have the highest hopes in the world for this. Cause I actually heard some mixed reviews of it out of Sundance. Um, but I, it really worked on me. So what I, what I call it surely though, uh, <laughs> versus, <laughs> Sorry, Miss Jackson. Jackson. If you're nasty, yeah. Miss Miss Jackson, 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 Jackson. Is this yeah. the Lincoln of Shirley Jackson biopics? <laughs> uh, I, it's the Iris of Shirley Jackson biopics. Ooh. You know what I mean? Ooh, okay, like, okay. Right? Is yeah. There, so, is there, yeah. So was, you're 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 a fan of the movie, and I think like one thing you're pointing to is it, the the atmosphere of the movie is very very. Um, uh, distinct, right? Mm-hmm. It's a unique movie in terms of telling the story, almost like a psychological horror movie, yeah. right? Almost very like chaotic a thriller, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, definitely not what I would expect from just like a, a, a movie about a uh, an author's life, um, right? Devinder Hardwar, your thoughts on Shirley? Uh, I found it really interesting, and I've read some of Shirley Jackson's stuff, um, so I kind of had that going into it. But my wife was watching it along with me, too. And I think she was into the weird vibe of this and just the whole setup of it, of this, like, um, clearly brilliant uh, writer who, you know, is having a tough time and also uh, has a husband who's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a shitbag. But the word. such such a he's like, such a, he's yeah. like evil version of Michael Stuhlbarg from Call Me by Your Name. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Dude, I had the exact same thought. <laughs> yeah. He's like it's Bizarro like, version of that character. What, instead of being stu- supported. It's Bizarro Stuhlbarg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's undermining instead of supportive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. creepy, like whenever he shows affection, it's like almost oh, like, yeah. So gross. creepy. <laughs> so, so creepy. creepy. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I think that relationship and seeing how like these two women coexist alongside their more domineering husbands i guess that to me was really fascinating and i love the just like this movie is edited in such a way that feels unique and different uh i never got around to seeing madeline's madeline um which is uh, josephine decker's last movie but i know a lot of people who genuinely love that thing so i need to go check that out now too um it just felt really fresh really unique um kind of like a horror thriller also probably not the movie i should be watching when i'm like settling into a new house and like not knowing everything <laughs> and all the corners of the house and everything so you know it's one of those but i, I really dug it all right jeff canada your thoughts on shirley well dave i guess you could say my thoughts on shirley are best summed up in the form of a limerick oh interesting actually i have two wow yeah, you, you guys aren't going to like them. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not going to like you either of them. your shots like All Babe right. Ruth over here. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. With moss darkly brooding and smoking, I thought at least it'd be thought provoking. <laughs> but if your argument is that it's time well spent, I'd say surely you must be joking. Wow. <laughs> Well, I, I have to say, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the sentiment, but rhyming yeah. argument and time well spent, mm-hmm. pretty good, Jeff. Pretty and good. really, really getting the Shirley joke in there, I almost, I would have put money that Jeff would have used that somehow. So, yes. yes. Yeah, perfect. no, nice. You, well, you, yes. Very, very well if done, you, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you like that one, you're going to love this one. <laughs> 
I just watched a movie called Shirley. My co-hosts can't like this film, surely. If the actor they hired for Halt and Catch Fire said he liked it, I'd scoff and say, surely. What? Sure, comma, Lee. Pace? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That is awful. Wow. You lose, you lose all of your points for the first one, Jeff. I feel like we have to eject you from this episode. Yeah, no. That's all we can do right now. We must strike all your comments from this episode because that that is by far the worst thing you've ever done. I rhymed three Shirley's, guys. It's called the the hat trick of Shirley's. I mean, you Um, wasted so many syllables on Halt and Catch Fire. (laughs) All right. Okay. Jeff, your, your beef with this movie. I didn't care for it. Also, John, uh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I, um. I'm, I'm glad you guys liked it. I did not care for it. I, and I, I will come. I will cop to the fact that I know nothing about Shirley Jackson, and that's on me. Um, I've never read any of her stories. Not familiar uh, with her. Jeff, She's just Jeff. Right now, by the way, you need to see The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Come on. Okay. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. But yes, you, yeah, uh, you've never read The Lottery, Jeff. Nope. Oh my gosh. That's you what were, I was tweeting were, about earlier today. Yeah. I thought everyone read the lottery. I read it in middle school and again in high school for some oh reason. Oh my god. Um, you went to really cool schools, Joanna. Like, wow. <laughs> it is brilliant. Jeff, it is brilliant. I didn't mean it like that. I was just like, I I just genuinely th- I thought it was like one of those stories that everyone reads. Yeah, like no. Romeo and Juliet or something. And the <laughs> and the response I'm getting to that tweet was like, that's true for like half the cut. I don't know, half sure. my following. I don't know what to say, but like people are decidedly mixed on whether or not they read the lottery in school. This is a you blind spot. You would love it. You would love it. I well, maybe I'll, I'll uh, maybe I'll read it. Um, I didn't find this movie to be coherent. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't find it to be. I it it, it isn't anything. Like it uh, it kind of sets up a mystery that it ends up not really caring about. It like half starts a bunch of storylines that it doesn't. It is about mood, and I understand. I, I'm glad to hear that the mood all worked for you guys. Uh, but I, it didn't work for me. It just it just felt like I kept waiting for it to be anything and complete a thought and just never completed a thought. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the the horror and the madness of it all. The the sort of unraveling of a psyche. We're supposed to be inside it. Uh, I didn't like how the movie was shot. It's so like the first half an hour is just like all handheld and distracting to me. Um, I, I just, I couldn't get into it. I never, I love all of these actors. Um, I thought that I was going to love this movie and uh, I f- could find no way in. I got n- nothing out of the experience. I ended up not knowing if this was all <laughs> even real at the end, I, you know, it just felt like I, well, what yeah, what yeah. even was any of this? Why did why, why was my time spent on this? Uh, and and I uh, apologize because I'm sure that is doesn't sound good to people who care about this real life person who who I did not care about because I had no it was a blind spot for me. It didn't it didn't um, I wasn't even really aware of her career. Uh, it, it, it and that's on me. That's on me. But uh, I didn't think the movie did anything to rectify that or make me want to read any of her stuff. I, there's a there's a, a reference to the lottery in the beginning, but nothing about the movie made me want to read it. I, yeah. I'm you guys talking about it makes me want to read it. And again, on me, I will completely yep. cop to the fact that's on me that I'm just have this, you know, blind spot mm-hmm. for this real life person. But in, I, in I, fairness, I did not care Jeff, for this movie. Th- this movie is pretty impenetrable. 
I think. <laughs> yes. like, I don't think <laughs> yes. it's really welcoming if, if you've got nothing yeah. here to this character. I am told this is Josephine Decker's most accessible movie, though. Like some, <laughs> yes. of, her, some of her other yes. stuff is is very mumblecore, uh, very experimental, um, and this feels like it's kind of right on the edge of that. But that's kind of what I like about this movie. You know, um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry it, it didn't work for you, Jeff. I, I agree with you that it doesn't have many of the things that uh, one would want in a conventional, let's say, mystery thriller. You know, where like, oh, the the narrative momentum is really pulling us along, and then we get a resolution at the end. You know, it, it doesn't have any of those things. Um, it's really about mood, it's about tone, and the things that I really come away with this movie uh, remembering, thinking about, are how well-drawn the relationship is between Shirley and her husband, uh, played by Michael Storbarg. I think that's just a very uh, specific kind of relationship that we don't see depicted on screen that often. Uh, and uh, uh, the relationship between Shirley and also this uh, muse of hers, right? Um but did you get? Did you come away feeling like you understood the relationship between she and her husband? I felt like there was a reading of it where it is a very dark, horrible thing, and then maybe not. Maybe that's all fiction in her head. That I, I, yeah, I just, I, I had no, no, I had no. It, yeah, no. It's. I mean, it's a very like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf sort of like mm-hmm. let's like torment each other in front of this young love and sour this young love because of our own like bitterness and stuff like that. And there is some basis for that in, in Shirley Jackson's real marriage with her husband and his many infidelities. But like the, um, uh, my interpretation, like the fa- the way that it ends with her, like dancing in his arms, I mean, like all the filmmakers involved, the screenwriter, the director have said the ending of this movie is supposed to be ambiguous. And I, there's something we're going to talk about the ending that we're not talking about here. But I think the, dancing part is okay to talk about and i just uh-huh. right that's not uh, sure why why not uh go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> okay sorry um but like i felt like it's supposed to end on an om- in an om- that's ominous to me that's awful to me like that she is just sort of like re-embrace this monster in her life the, I mean, and not that she's not without her own monstrosity, but like the way I, I also think of it as like sort of almost like a Tom and Daisy Buchanan sort of thing where like they're yes. awful, but they're awful for each other. Yeah. So like, that's how they, they're perfect coexist. for each other because of their kind of awfulness in many yeah. ways. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's the, I, I, that's the reading I got as well. I also thought the depiction of a small liberal arts college, <laughs> uh, was a little close to home for you. Yeah, spot on. I, it yep. just was like this is this you you know it's, you know especially Devinger and I have been in that setting before, but like you kind of understand all the kind of uh-huh. pretense and the pomp and circumstance. Also, and also the philandering professors. Uh, the philandering I professors. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a professor. I, I no no joke. I think you know who this is, Devinger. Uh-huh. But I had a professor who slept with a student and wrote a book about it. Um, <laughs> ah, uh, like like a like wrote a novel about it. Um, oh, a novel. That's okay yeah. then. <laughs> I think I yeah. know. Anyway, you may yeah, you may know who I'm talking about. But anyway, point being, um, <laughs> like it's just like this is you you really get a sense of like why it is like Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, it, how he is allowed to survive and thrive in this environment. But you can also understand that type of person feels very accurate. Um, so, uh, th- these are the things I really uh, appreciated about the movie. There's a moment in the movie, about midway through the movie, where they're at a party, which is shot as though it's a carnival yes. of horrors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, Shirley Jackson's character, played by Elizabeth Moss, just 
starts pouring wine all over the extremely nicely upholstered couch. And this woman, the dean's wife, I think it is, uh, yeah. comes over and says, like, you know, starts like cleaning. She, like, oh she my is distraught. Yeah. And she's yeah like, it's she's, a big she's, deal. Like, you got to start cleaning it up. And then Shirley starts like wiping it, like spreading out the wine all over the seat. And she's like, no, you must dab. You must dab, you see. And it, it's like this idea of this woman cares more about whether Shirley is dabbing or not and not the fact that Shirley seems to be extremely in a mentally distressed state mm-hmm. pouring wine everywhere you know but and also that's... also enjoying it and also enjoying <laughs> torturing this person and then what she says to that yeah, uh, woman afterwards amazing. is just so uh, it's so biting like i love elizabeth moss in uh, in roles like this and what, mm-hmm. what was the uh, the other one the music one she had just recently done her smell oh her smell that yeah. that movie is so abrasive but mm-hmm. also so interesting because of that I also think this like this idea of like Shirley Jackson is this like seductive figure at the center of this movie where mm-hmm. like is she like this is obviously not Elizabeth Moss at her most physically alluring um, <laughs> like that's not what they're going for but there is tremendous power to Shirley Jackson because she was incredibly brilliant incredibly witty and incredibly like mm-hmm. dynamic in her own way so it's just sort of like watching this young woman get sort of ensnared yeah. in this net and like, it's very mad scientist yeah to her something like that something like a little a little mischievous yeah yeah and it's like it it reminds me of uh like suspiria or duke of burgundy or like this uh, these other movies where you just watch like a young woman get like sort of uh ensorcelled by an older woman and um and i think also just like i like that word joanna I would like it to use more often. <laughs> <laughs> and then I and then I just think this idea of like exploring what it means to be not just like a genius, which Shirley Jackson was, but like a woman and a genius, and a woman in the fifties and a genius, and like this idea of like um her her physicality and how much like that was an obstacle to like her feeling accepted despite the fact that she could run circles around probably every single professor you know on the screen like and certainly your husband and like that he needs to keep her in a certain place by undermining her when she was incredibly brilliant and he was like a respected critic in his own right but it's like it's like that fossey verdon sort of thing where it's just mm-hmm. sort of like your your talent is allowed to exist but really mostly in the way that it shines like reflects glory on me sort of mm. thing um which i thought was really strong yeah i mean he, I th- he yeah. said something about like when he first uh, read her stuff right and he was mm-hmm. like he was possessed with the idea that he must marry her and take her in a way, in a right. very possessive way. And I think that's right. like everything about how he views her. Right, exactly. And like this idea that um I like that like her her needing his approval, I don't know, it's just like it's so heartbreaking and frustrating to see. I will agree that like the the way in which the movie blends the like fiction of this story that she's trying to tell that's connected to this real life mystery that she based one of her novels on, that's connected to this like fictionalized young woman who's come to live with her that didn't happen <laughs> in real life. Mm-hmm. Like all of that, you know, blurs together in a way that is very confusing and dreamlike um so i can understand that if you were trying to like parse it for like exact you're like what exactly am i watching here that's going to be a very frustrating movie watching experience but i think if you just like sort of if you want to watch it and if you just decide to watch it for mood i think it's very rewarding i agree i agree completely um and i I, with both parts of what you said at some point i just thought to myself i have to stop trying to figure out exactly what's happening yeah and just 
let this movie happen and accept what it has to offer. Uh, and I had a good time with it. I had a good time. Let's get to spoilers for Shirley starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, so we're going to do full full spoilers now, but <laughs> sorry. My question sorry about that. <laughs> I, I, I may put a little warning at the beginning for that that uh but sure. it's all good, Joanna. Um but uh I want to ask um w- Joanna, what is it that you think happened at the end of this movie? <laughs> what is what is well, it that I, happened? Or, or during any of it? <laughs> I definitely it. I definitely googled for like SEO help. Uh, you know, like um, uh, ambiguous ending, surely ending, surely, yeah. Uh, oh, and like Refinery Twenty Nine came through. Yeah, I read that article. Uh, I read that article. <laughs> but like, I guess so. I guess what we're most we're meant to take from it what we decide we want to take from it. And so, did this young woman like jump off a cliff? Did she uh, leave in a car with her husband? Were they ever actually there in the first place? Like, I think all three of those are fine. Uh, mm-hmm interpretations but what seems to be true no matter what whether or not this was like a a figment of Shirley's imagination or the young woman jumped or she was like I'm not going to go back to being your nice housewife anymore it's about like a femininity of a certain kind which is like the nice um, you know put together young pregnant bride like being awakened and forever fundamentally changed by um Uh by Shirley. So like whoever Rose Rosie was when she got there, that person is dead, whether literally or like, I'm not going to go back to being your wife anymore. And whether or not that Rosie ever existed, that is like a thing that Shirley herself, like, like insisted on like perverting and changing. Do you know what I mean? That was, that was my Mm -hmm. interpretation. Whatever Mm -hmm. that, that example of femininity (laughs) was, Shirley was like perverting, changing, liberating from that definition of who a woman could be. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Oh wow. Wow. There's a lot of fireworks happening. Know, wow. People are celebrating People, that. They, the... Yeah, they totally agree with you, Joe. <laughs> yeah. That was a... My only my only pushback on that again, this movie may be just way over my head, and I'm just maybe maybe too simple to get it. I'm per- perfectly willing to cop to that if that's the case. <laughs> My only pushback on that, which I think is a, a lovely interpretation, is that it seems to me that, I mean, if if that is to be the reading of the movie, I don't understand how Shirley's influence really w- was that. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I could believe that Rose would have the same experience had she found out her husband was cheating this whole time, regardless of whether she met Shirley or not, right? Well, it's it, not it was, just the husband component right it's also mm-hmm. uh the experiences she had with shirley um but the, but that's helping, what i'm saying i, I read her book and everything you know all that stuff okay go ahead i'm just saying that's not what i'm convinced of right the movie i didn't think the movie did did the job in making that turn that that character goes through a a result of shirley i, I it i clearly they went through some things and she was changed by meeting shirley but all of that stuff in the third act seemed to result from her relationship with her husband coming to light. Meanwhile, Shirley seems to have this very complicit relationship with her own husband who says over and over, we have this agreement. You know who I'm sleeping with. I've told you over and over like to to say it's, it sort of was an expression of 
sort of feminist uh, empowerment. I would have liked to have seen that. I just, I, I didn't get that from the movie because it just didn't seem to add up to me, but maybe I'm missing something. Well, I would say liberation with a limitation because like, that's, that's why I think the ending is sad because it's like, like something that I thought was one of the most interesting things I, I read connected to Rose and Shirley's path together is that as like Rose is getting more sort of disheveled in her appearance, um, Shirley is getting more put together in her appearance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this sort of like, so it's almost like she's feeding off of her in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, or she's showing her a different way, you know, that a woman can be, which is like, you, your hair doesn't have to be perfectly curled all the time or whatever. Um, but I, but I think that like, I'm not saying that this is like a huge feminist thing, though. I would say that there are feminist um, ideals in Shirley Jackson's work, which is a lot about like young women who like want more, are interested in more, have ambition and are in these like uh, weird, spooky circumstances. But like, I think um, whatever liberation Shirley might offer someone, she is then sort of a victim to her own toxic relationship and not 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 a victim as as in she doesn't have her own part to play but she's like she's like hooked into this toxic feedback loop with her husband so i'm not saying she represents the ideal of like the liberated woman but there is like there is something like occult and seductive i mean i think i think to your argument of like whether or not it was shirley who changed rose in any way i think that like porch swing scene which is like really, mm-hmm. really steamy, and like the dining table scene are both like indication that this is like very much, if not literally, like a sexual, you know, circumstances relationship. Very much like a deeply connected su- seduction, you know. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think those scenes added up to anything, right? I, I thought, oh, here's this major turning point where we're going to see this woman pull away from her husband and be seduced by Shirley or it turn into something more than this, uh, you know, sort of, um, teacher student relationship or what, you know, on their side. And it just, I, I felt like there was just a whole bunch of things brought up and then just kind of laid on the table like tarot cards and, and never, none of them add together to form anything. And again, I, I don't mean to, keep saying the same thing over and over again. Clearly it worked for you guys, but I, I would love to be in, you know, illuminated on this. I'd love to be enlightened and, and understand what I missed. I do think that idea is interesting though, John Robinson about, um, uh, the idea that it comes with limitations, even at the end when, uh, Rose played by Odessa young is in the vehicle driving away from the house. Right. and, she says, you know, oh, well, that rose is gone. Or she's like, you know, the old rose is dead, basically, right? Um, I think it's pretty clear that Logan Lerman's character is going to put her in some kind of sanitarium, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, even yeah. though she might feel spiritually liberated in some way, the, these women are still alive in an era in which, like, men can control their bodies and property. Um, and in fact, it was a fact that that uh, Shirley Jackson's real life husband, I believe, controlled their finances despite her making a lot more money than him. Um, so uh, there is this kind of inherent tragedy of uh, these women being liberated but living during the time that they lived in. Uh, and that, I thought, came out with that, that kind of haunting right. ending as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the scene that really sums this movie up for me 
was reading this article at Vulture, which is like kind of a profile of Josephine Decker. And uh, the the writer of the article writes, quote, Shirley diverges from uh, Josephine Decker's earlier films in that she mostly worked from a screenplay written by someone else, but some of its most interesting moments break away from the confines of narrative. At one point, the script called for the author's muse, played by Odessa Young, to plant a geranium in Jackson's garden. In the middle of filming the scene, Decker pointed out to Young that her character was disintegrating and suggested she roll around in the mud. On a narrative level, the move makes little sense, but it resonated with the deeper logic of Decker's artistic universe. Watching her work, I felt that was someone who believes in magic or in levels of reality that are not obvious, said Miranda July, who is a friend of Josephine Decker. Uh, so that's a quote from the article. I, I really love that scene when she just rolls around in the mud for no reason. <laughs> it was very uh, upsetting. You know, because you're just yeah, watching yeah. this person yeah. who's otherwise completely functional human being and then just like get on the ground and roll around. And I think it's just <laughs> you, you know, and Jeff, it sounds like this didn't work for you, but you have to you have to be willing to believe that um, Shirley Jackson as a creative force uh, through sheer force of her genius and personality is able to uh, be intoxicating, is able to like ensnare this person, is able to like get this person into their grasp, into their world. Uh, and if you are, if you do believe that, if you do buy that, then this scene where she's like rolling around in the mud makes a lot of sense. And if you don't, then but the like, movie doesn't work if, at all, right? Is she a real, even a real person? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I, my se- I, I did not think that they were fake people. That w- I never got the sense that they were not real. Right, John right. Robinson, do you have an opinion on that? Um, the only thing I thought from maybe them not being real, um, was the shot at the end of like the of her at the dining room table, and since it was, I don't know, uh, like I was like, uh, because it showed us like uh, we it showed us Rose vanishing off the cliffside and then also driving away, and I'm like, yeah. if both of those things are possible, then like a third option, she was never there at all, has to also be possible. Right, and also know. the fact that like they used Odessa Young's face as Paula, like the missing girl as well. Right, makes, mm-hmm. you, makes you feel like, yes. huh? Like, is this? Yeah, just so, all part of her creative process. You know? Yes, that's that's what I got out of it. Yeah, it's yeah, possible. Which would, we, which would also be a really interesting reading, I think. Right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, but but Je- but Jeff, you know, I think you just kind of make the the decision for yourself what to mm-hmm. take away from it. Um, unfortunately, sounds like the answer is not that much, but <laughs> I think we all got a lot out of it. Uh, and uh, sorry, it didn't work for you, Jeff. Any other thoughts uh, before we close out for today, uh, or shall we shall we wrap it up there? I think uh, yeah, Devendra, Joanna, and I quite enjoyed it mm-hmm. Jeff not as much of a fan but um, it should be pointed out that it is executive produced by Martin Scorsese um, who has credited Decker with helping to expand the language of cinema uh, according to like Scorsese that. so uh, worth checking out in my opinion just for that recommendation alone but in any case that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Slash Filmcast I think you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. And also just give a shout out for uh, Kyle Hillinger. Uh, he's making YouTube videos. We'll link to those uh, in the show notes. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, they can find us talking about more films based on true stories over on Truth versus Hollywood. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, how about you, Jeff Canada? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I have several other shows for you to check out if you're so inclined. I do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Uh, I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. Uh, you can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. And if you want to hear me making up my own epic story, uh, that's happening on a show called The Dungeon Run. It's a fantasy sort of Game of Thrones-esque high fantasy show. We just did episode 52. You do not need to watch any previous episode to leap in, jump right in. Uh, everything you need to know is recapped at the top of every episode. You can watch new episodes on YouTube by searching for The Dungeon Run, or you can listen as an audio podcast by searching for The Dungeon Run, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we also stream live every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. your Hardware. Oh, you can find me on Twitter, and I write about tech at uh, Engadget.com. I'm on break for um, another week, so don't ask me about tech news. And I'm at Devendra on Twitter. I forgot that part. I need the mo- the latest tech developments, even as I you're no idea to what's happening your new right house, now. Devendra. Yeah. Uh, anyway, apparently Microsoft is launching two Xboxes. Anyway. <laughs> Um, okay. You can find my stuff at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chensky. I have a vlog in which I discuss going to a drive-in movie theater. Maybe I'll talk about that in the next slash. Nice. Guest. Um, yeah. Check that out at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chensky. Next week, you know, guys, we actually, I forgot to do this. This was something we were supposed to do before the show. We were supposed to agree on what we're going to review next week. But I, <laughs> I already that, agree. But uh, I agree. I suggest Hamilton, which is yes. going to be hitting. Do it. Do it. Uh, it's going to be hitting uh, Disney Plus on July 3rd, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be watching Hamilton. Jeff, this will be your first time watching Hamilton, right? Yes, indeed. Oh, Finally. Man. I'm so excited. Joanna yeah. Robinson, have you seen Hamilton before? Yeah, I got to, I got to see Hamilton on Broadway uh, with the original cast that my like my dad and my sister surprised me with a ticket. I was in New York for work, and they called me, and they're like, happy birthday and Merry Christmas for the next like four years. We got oh, an insanely yeah. expensive yeah. ticket to Hamilton. And then they just put it on <laughs> Disney Plus, Joanna Robinson. Yeah. I mean... I tried, I tried to do the lottery for Hamilton every day for four months in L.A., and oh, I never no. got tickets. Yeah. It's right. So anyway, it's all good. Friday, we'll see it. Well, we will uh, be talking about it next week here on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.